Chapter 2 of The Conquest This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lyndon Godsell The Conquest by Oscar Mayhew Leaving Home a Maiden I was seventeen when I at last left Empless. I accepted a rough job at a dollar and a quarter a day in a car manufacturing concern in a town of 8,000 population, about 800 being colored. I was unable to save very much, for work was dull that summer, and I was only averaging about four days' work a week. Besides, I had an attack of malaria at intervals for a period of two months, but by going to work at five o'clock a.m. when I was well, I could get in two extra hours, making a dollar fifty. The concern employed about twelve hundred men and paid their wages every two weeks. Holding back one week's pay, I came there in June, and it was some time in September that I drew my fullest pay envelope which contained sixteen dollars and fifty cents. About this time a fire-eating colored evangelist, who apparently possessed great converting powers and unusual eloquence, came to town. These qualities, however, usually became very uninteresting towards the end of a stay. He had been to Emplus the year before I left, and at that place his popularity greatly diminished before he left. The greater part of the colored people in this town were of the emotional kind, and to these he was as attractive as he had been at Emplus in the beginning. Coincident with the commencement of Reverend McIntyre's soul-stirring sermons, a big revival was inaugurated and although the little church was filled nightly to its capacity, the aisles were kept clear in order to give those that were steeping in hell's fire, as the evangelists characterized those who were not members of some church, an open road to enter into the field of the righteous, also to give the mourners sufficient room in which to exhaust their emotions when the spirit struck them, and it is needless to say that they were used. At times they virtually converted the entire floor into an active gymnasium, regardless of the rights of the other person or of the chairs they occupied. I had seen and heard people shout at long intervals in church, but here after a few soul-stirring sermons, they began to run outside where there was more room to give vent to the hallucination and this wandering of the mind. It could be called nothing else, for after the first few sermons the evangelist would hardly be started before some mourner would begin to come through. This revival warmed up to such proportions that preaching and shouting began in the afternoon instead of evening. Men working in the yards of the foundry two blocks away 
could hear the shouting above the roaring furnaces and the deafening noise of machinery of a great car manufacturing concern. The church stood on a corner where two streets or avenues intersected, and for a block in either direction the influence of fanaticism became so intense that the converts began running about like wild creatures, tearing their hair and uttering prayers and supplications in discordant tones. At the evening services the sisters would gather around a mourner that showed signs of weakening and sing and babble until he or she became so befuddled they would jump up, throw their arms widely into the air, kick, strike, then cry out like a dying soul, fall limp and exhausted into the many arms outstretched to catch them. This was always conclusive evidence of a contrite heart and a thoroughly penitent soul. Far into the night this performance would continue, and when the mourner's bench became empty the audience would be searched for sinners. I would sit through it all quite unemotional, and nightly I would be approached with, Aren't you ready? to which I would make no answer. I noticed that several boys, who were not in good standing with the parents of girls they wished to court, found the mourner's bench a convenient vehicle to the homes of these girls, all of whom belonged to church. Girls over eighteen who did not belong were subjects of much gossip and abuse. A report in some inconceivable manner soon became spread that Oscar Devereux had said that he wanted to die and go to hell. Such a sensation. I was approached on all sides by men and women, regardless of the time of day or night, by the young men who gloried in their conversation and who urged me to get right with Jesus before it was too late. I do not remember how long these meetings lasted, but they suddenly came to an end when notice was served on the church trustees by the city council, which irreverently declared that so many converts every afternoon and night was disturbing the white neighborhood's rest as well as their nerves. It ordered windows and doors to be kept closed during services, and, as the church was small, it was impossible to house the congregation and all the converts, so the revival ended and the community was restored to normal and calm once more prevailed. That was in September. One Sunday afternoon in October, as I was walking along the railroad track, I chanced to overhear voices coming from under a water tank where a space of some eight or ten feet enclosed by four huge timbers made a small secluded place. I stopped, listened, and was sure I recognized the voices of Douglas Brock, his brother Melvin, and two other well-known colored boys. Douglas was betting a quarter with one of the other boys that he couldn't pass. You who know the dice and its vagaries will know what he meant. This was mingled with words and commands from Melvin to the dice in trying to make some point. It must have been four. He would let out a sort of yowl. Little Joe, can't you do it? 
I went my way. I didn't chew craps nor drink neither. Did I belong to church? But was called a dreadful sinner. While three of the boys under the tank had, not less than six weeks before, joined church and were now full-fledged members in good standing. Of course, I did not consider that all people who belonged to church were not Christians, but was quite sure that many were not. The following January, a relative of mine got a job for me bailing water in a coal mine in a little town inhabited entirely by Negroes. I worked from six o'clock p.m. to six a.m. and received two dollars and twenty-five cents. Therefore, the work was rough and hard, and the mine was very dark. The smoke hung like a cloud near the top of the tunnel-like room during all the night. This was because the fans were all but shut off at night, and just enough air was pumped in to prevent the formation of black damp. The smoke made my head ache until I felt stupid, and the dampness made me ill. But the two dollars and twenty-five cents per day looked good to me. After six weeks, however, I was forced to quit, and with sixty-five dollars more money than I'd ever had, I went to see my older sister, who was teaching in a nearby town. I had grown into a strong, husky youth of eighteen, and my sister was surprised to see that I was working and taking care of myself so well. She shared the thought of nearly all of my acquaintances that I was too lazy to leave home and do hard work, especially in the winter time. After a while, she suddenly looked at me and spoke as though afraid she would forget it. Oh, Oscar, I've got a girl for you. What do you think of that? Smiling so pleasantly, I was afraid she was joking. You see, I had never been very successful with the girls, and when she mentioned having a girl for me, my heart was all of a flutter. And when she hesitated, I put in eagerly. Ah, go on, quit! You're kidding. On the level now, or are you just chiding me? But she took on a serious expression, and speaking thoughtfully, she went on. Yes, she lives next door, and is a nice little girl and pretty—the prettiest coloured girl in town. Here I lost interest, for I remembered my sister was foolish about beauty, and I said that I didn't care to meet her. I was suspicious when it came to the pretty type of girls, and I had observed that the prettiest girl in town was oft times petted and spoiled, and a mere butterfly. Oh, why? She spoke like one hurt. Then I confessed my suspicions. Oh, you're foolish! She exclaimed softly, appearing relieved. Besides, she went on brightly. Jessie isn't a spoiled girl. You wait until you meet her, and in spite of my protests, she sent the landlady's little girl off for Miss Rooks. She came over in about an hour, and I found her to be demure and thoughtful, as well as pretty. She was small of stature, had dark eyes and beautiful wavy black hair, and an olive complexion. She wouldn't allow me to look into her eyes, but continued to cast them downwards, sitting with folded hands and answering when spoken to in a tiny voice quite in keeping with her small person.
During the afternoon, I mentioned that I was going to Chicago. Now, Oscar, you've got no business in Chicago, my sister spoke up with a touch of authority. You're too young, and besides, she asked, do you know whether W.O. wants you? W.O. was our oldest brother, and was then making Chicago his home. Ha! I snorted. I'm going on my own hook, and drawing up to my full six feet, I tried to look brave, which seemed to have the desired effect on my sister. Well, she said resignedly, you must be careful and not get into bad company. Be good and try to make a man of yourself. End of chapter 2